Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Ron Benza at Benza Vineyards in Hillsborough. It's uh, June 5th, uh, 2023. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to have you all. Uh, first question, get things started, is why wine? I got wine in the blood when I lived in France. I, 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 I could trace it back to that. I liked wine before I went to France, and that was a long time ago in my career. Uh, a few careers ago, actually, I was in the advertising business. And I lived in Brussels and then Paris and had a chance to travel out to the wine regions of France. One memorable occasion that I still have the menu for was a, uh, a fabulous night in the 12th century Chateau Clovaugeau in Burgundy, where my client, John Murray of Mars, was being inducted into the Chevalier de Tadevin, which is an old order. I mean, this is red robes, the ceremonial vines being blessed and things like this. And uh, it was an amazing event. When I walked in there, there were 600 places set in this massive hall. And I'm thinking, how are they going to feed us? How are they going to serve wine to all this group? Well, they had it way more organized than I thought. There were something like, I don't know, 12 or 15 doors on either side. And at a like, gong went off. The doors opened up. The waiters came with the first dish. And the wines followed right afterwards. And we had a wonderful menu. And I still have that menu with the wines on it. About the third dish, and I'm a big eater, I couldn't do anything more. Uh, it, Burgundy cuisine, Burgundian cuisine is pretty heavy stuff. The wines, however, kept flowing the whole night. And uh, we had, I think it was seven glasses in front of us, plus a small cognac glass for the Mar de Bourgogne, their, their version of cognac, of course. And it was just amazing. Even back in that era, and this is the 80s, there were the gendarmes outside to make sure that no one drove. Everybody came in by bus, nobody left by car came or, or left by car. It was just a wonderful evening. And I think I was, I was sold before that, but to tell you the truth, th those wines, that evening, Burgundy, the romance of it all, I just said, okay, this is in my future somehow. Careers, you've got to do your career. You've got to make your money somehow. I came back eventually to New York. In my case, I'm from New York. Uh, went back into the business there. And, but I always had this dream in mind. Well, a whole bunch of things later, uh, career-wise, around 2003, 2004, I set out to look for property in Sonoma. Living in Northern California, running McCann Erickson in the Bay Area, McCann Erickson San Francisco, then the largest ad agency in the world, and I was running an important top five office for, the, for them oh, throughout most of the 90s, actually. Close enough to Sonoma to do damage. Lived in Marin County, could be in the center square in Sonoma. My record was 28 minutes, actually. That's more like 35 minute drive, but uh, lunch, it's doable for lunch. And really, um, really started looking in earnest for property. And for me, the dream was not just wine, because there's many 
areas that you could enter the wine business. You don't have to have the estate and the grapes and the winery. You could be a distributor, you could be a rep, you could you could you could be in the storage business, which is what I tell everybody these days. If frankly if you love the wine business but really the the dream is not owning an estate and making wine the storage business is the place to go if you really want to make money because there just isn't any of it left um, and it's an interesting business to get into um, i couldn't really make it work in sonoma i just never found the property uh, what we have here 26 acres uh, with 12 and a half planted would be I would say, conservatively, you could put a 6x to 8x for this in Sonoma, and it wouldn't be as pretty as the Willamette Valley in Oregon. I love Sonoma, I love the look of the place, but it's not this. It's not Oregon, it's not, it's not this beautiful. And uh, there's a reason those pioneers wanted to get here back in the Oregon Trail. Um, this was the promised land, and it truly is. I think it is. So it never really happened in Sonoma, and then I got another crack at the apple, and this was in Little Livermore. Now, this, if you're familiar with the Bay Area geography, Livermore is the last town uh, before you get into the Central Valley and go through the foothills. And Livermore is its own little wine country, home to 63 wineries, hot weather stuff, Cab Merlot, Cab Franc. I said, well, oh, okay, maybe uh, my uh, then girlfriend and wife, was Trish, was working uh, at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And I said, well, okay, this is, I got another shot at this. The problem is Livermore has 4,400 acres planted. About 2,300 are Wente and Concanon alone. They've been there a long time. And there really wasn't much available. So I'm thinking, Sonoma's now sort of out of the question with Trisha's job. She was an associate director of the computation directorate. And uh, Livermore is not going to work. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I really tried. I really tried. But Trish, being the intrepid soul that she is, saying, she, I probably said to me a hundred times, don't give up. Don't give up. If you could visualize it, it will happen. And she, she must have told me that literally a hundred times. <laughs> Just don't give up, keep it in mind, keep it right in the front of your head. Something will happen, something will guide you towards that. Something did. The something that did was in her case, it wasn't me, it was her. Uh, Intel reached out, which as you know is very big in Washington County, and offered her a job she couldn't refuse uh, to be running the high-performance computing business at Intel worldwide. And so that, I, I just looked at her and I said, oh my God, well, I'm at Valley, our favorite Pinot Noir. It's a no-brainer, we gotta do this. And we agreed and so we had our stuff moved up. We drove up with uh, three cats, with three tuxedos in the car, which are inside right now. Uh, and they're part of the Benza branding, the bow tie logo and uh, notch on the labels, it owes to them. And um, I started looking in earnest now, once again, for land. But this time, I had a little bit bigger playpen. The Willamette Valley has a lot more availabilities than Sonoma did uh, at, at much more reasonable prices. This is 2017. and. Um, stumbled upon this, literally stumbled upon this property here. The Baileys who owned this, uh, Steve was the CFO of FLIR, the company, farming, farming kids from Tillamook 
And so he always had this in his background to want to do something here. And, uh, but Grow Grapes was the extent that he didn't want to really make wine. Although we had a, an association with Laurent Montelieu that went back years. In fact, no, Laurent knows his property and even farmed it for many years. And uh, Steve tried to sell two of the th properties together, this and where the winery building is. Uh, this, the property we're sitting on now is seven and a half acres and the other property is uh, nine acres. And just couldn't make a go of it. So he, he brought it down to one individual property that had three acres, this one that we're sitting on here. And so it didn't show as a vineyard estate. It showed more like a hobby farm. Uh, a hobby vineyard on a nice house, basically. So we got into it and realized, well, both properties were for sale. And so we actually ended up doing the deal for both properties. That brought us 12 acres. And uh, we then, crazy fools that we are, ended up buying the third house on the property, which is another 4,000 square foot house, for which we have plans. The, the plans there are to make that a tasting room and event space. But the, um, let's just say the winery hath runneth over in cost, <laughs> not surprisingly. And uh, this is Nebby, by the way. She's always in every shot. I don't know if she's in frame, but uh, she's our Australian shepherd. She, she keeps us all safe, uh, along with Chloe, the Great Pyrenees. And uh, so that, that was the ensemble of the dream. Um, we now have 26 acres basically for the dogs to run around with a eight foot tall deer fence that runs all the way around. And um, until, unless we buy any more land or, or partition from a neighbor, we, we can't really expand where we are. Uh, but we did recently plant a half acre of Pinot Meunier that's uh, right alongside of us here. Uh, so that, that's the half of acre. So let's back up for a second before we talk about uh, Benza and how it's gone. But tell us about, you mentioned other, other part of your other career. So tell me about um, uh, where you were born and raised, upbringing, and uh, how you kind of launched into your first career. Yeah, yeah. So born and raised in the suburbs of New York City, uh, Westchester County, about 14 miles north of the city. Have lived in and around the New York metro area, Westchester, have lived in the city itself, Manhattan, twice. Both of my boys were born in Manhattan. Um, went out of graduate school from NYU, uh, master's in business at what is today called the Stern School, into, into the advertising business. Could have been product marketing, uh, excuse me, it could have been uh, uh, marketing at a client company. Uh, packaged goods, when I came out, was the thing. Mm -hmm. Technology would be years in the future. The, the preeminent marketing people all went into packaged goods when I came out of school, as did I, and started working on um, at Ted Bates ad agency, which at the time was the second largest agency in the world, started at on the Carter Wallace account as an account executive. It, Carter Wallace makes arid deodorant and things like that. Moved over to the Mars business, and that started a six-year odyssey with Mars. Um, ended up uh, becoming the account supervisor on M&M's, Starburst, and a few other brands that you all know. Then took that knowledge as um, I had one trip to Europe with my boss, John Fitzgerald, and this was a trip of a lifetime. I had never been to Europe before. Come back to New York, he puts his feet up on my desk, he goes, so, how would you like to move to Europe? I said, what? 
moved here. Because, yeah, uh, the Mars company wants us to establish ourselves in Brussels, Belgium, so that we can carry on all of the, in both cases, confectionery and pet food strategies. I said, okay, you know, confectionery, I've, I've got some familiarity, pet food. Most people don't realize Mars is actually the world's pet food leader. And um, so that started an odyssey of, of literally um, writing my own ticket since the company had never sent an American expat overseas. Uh, the job was gonna be in French. So the first thing, John Murray, this very same person I started with talking about at the Chevalier de Tadevin, said to me, look, Ron, here's the deal. You will be no good to me whatsoever if you can't speak French. It's gonna be difficult. My people are gonna to wanna to speak to you in English. That's fine, we can't stop them from doing that. But you have to respond in French. And what I recommend you do is go to Paris and go to Berlitz Total Immersion for four or five weeks and then just take it as seriously as you can. And I did, I, I did exactly that. We set me up in an apartment in Paris for temporary for two months. And I went to Berlitz every day to learn French, one-on-one, -on -one, much like this. And it was mind-bogglingly difficult. It was eight o'clock in the morning till 6 p.m. at night, coffee breaks and lunch with the professors one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes two of them on me. <laughs> it was like, by one o'clock in the afternoon, your head is splitting, but you just keep going. And then they said, look, if you, if you take it seriously, what you should do is when you go home, if you're taking the Metro, read all the ads up on the Metro walls, the buses, same thing, turn on the television, listen to the commercials, listen, you know, watch movies, go to movies, get a French girlfriend. You gotta just totally immerse yourself in the whole thing. Well, I did all the above. So <laughs> I, I felt I was, you know, in decent shape, but you have days that are good and bad and they're, you know, bad day I was thinking, God, can I really do this? I mean, it's one thing to putter on in French. It's nothing to have to do it for your livelihood, a language I hadn't really ever spoken. And I remember being a little bit down one day and looking out my window and I heard this commotion on the street and there was a mom with her, I think probably a four or five year old talking back to her and she was you know, yelling at him and I said, that's it, that's how we learn. We learn from our mothers. We don't, we don't learn vocabulary. We don't learn how to conjugate verbs. That comes much later. We just absorb, we absorb phrases. And that kid was using all the vocabulary he had at the time to mom and she was responding back. And whether he realized it or not, he was learning from her right then and there. And then I, I, I realized, well, you know something, how did I learn English? <laughs> and so I, I persevered, got through that bad day and, uh, it was great. I, I went to Brussels and uh, did the job there, and that eventually led for me coming back to Paris uh, permanently for two years. And had a wonderful, gorgeous apartment on the boulevard, I still remember the number, I don't know how, Five Saint Boulevard Suchet, which is the interior periphery of Paris, across from the Bois de Boulogne, just beautiful place, sunlit windows, sliding glass doors, uh, crazy activity all the time. And loved it, absolutely loved it. Came back to the U.S. and um, back to New York and was in New York five years where both my kids were born and then went to Minneapolis. I guess I'm an adventurer at heart. I, a little, 
side story, before I actually went to Europe, I was 27 at the time, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? Because every friend and every colleague I had said, you're making a big mistake. You're making a mistake leaving New York. You're not leaving the ad business, but you're making a mistake leaving New York. And because, and it's still probably true today. It's if once you leave New York in the advertising business, you're on the B team by, by definition. It doesn't matter if you come from there or you've succeeded in New York. If you leave there, the, the, you get a pat on the head. It's like, nice, thank you. you know. And this, this happened to me later on. And in the, the musings of, God, do I really do this? It's, it's an enormous undertaking to, to go overseas, leave family and friends behind. Like I said, I was 27. And I said, well, a second, wait a second. I'm worried about leaving family and friends behind, going to Paris and Brussels, living off the fat of the land in those places. And honestly, my dad at 27 was on a Liberty ship bound for New Guinea to fight the Japanese in the jungles. And I'm thinking, okay, that's it, you know, I'm going. So I did, and I'm glad I did. It was probably one of the, it, it was absolutely one of the highlights of my life. And I speak French to this day, and uh, my kids are bilingual too, by the way. <laughs> so um, came back, um, was in New York for five years. I ended up going to Minneapolis as a promotion to, to run an office. I had never done that before. I'd always worked big accounts as an account director or management supervisor, as we recall back then and uh, ran, uh, I was with another ad agency at the time, Bozell, which I had a 10-year career in, and the last five years was running the Minneapolis office. As it turned out, my very first boss in business, John Fitzgerald, who I mentioned before, who hired me out of school, ended up hiring me to run the office in McCann. As he likes to say, I made the same mistake 17 years later. <laughs> and uh, McCann Erickson was an interesting office. Uh, 300 uh, odd people. Um, our big account was AT&T Wireless, which we had pitched and won over the course of a year and a half. I think we had 130 people alone, uh, full-time. I think we had 82 full-time and 130 full-time equivalents just working on that business with satellite offices. It was, it was huge. And brought an old archaic agency because it had been founded in the breakup of Standard Oil in 1911, believe it or not. H.K. Um, McCann was John D. Rockefeller's marketing guy. <laughs> and he went, so John, do you mind, since we have to break up the company, can I go over there and establish an ad agency and get your business? Sure. And that's how it started. So he started with uh, Standard Oil, which became later on many iterations later Chevron, and, um, and Del Monte two years later, 1913. And uh, so a lot of old established accounts, kind of as old pedigreed San Francisco as you could get. But then San Francisco went through a creative revolution also in the 80s, 90s in particular with Goodby Silverstein and other great agencies. And so my job was to try to turn around what was a bit of a has-been, uh, uh, an archaic old stodgy agency that had a once premier brand name, but now was associated with the past, not the future. And of course, the future was changing to technology um, right under our feet. And so that was an interesting transition, and I managed that um, as best I could. I, I left in, uh, we actually an idea we had to merge 
our agency, McCann Erickson San Francisco with Anderson Lemke, which is a technology agency, worked and I didn't get the top job, which was very interesting. That kind of freed me up. I could have gone back to New York. I could have gone almost anywhere in the world with McCann at that point, but I chose to stay in San Francisco. I, I really felt like this was the future. And so once again, I rolled the dice and just said, I really think this is going to be where I need to stay. And um, what ended up happening is I had a, a number of offers in different fields and I ended up being a, a chief marketing officer for a Silicon Valley software company called, uh, at the time, Chainlink Technologies and then later uh, rebranded it to Quintana in the IT automation space. So really a field apart. That was uh, about a little more than two years. The company was sold to Mercury Interactive and uh, I was looking around then for my next gig and I, at this point, I said, okay, I'm 26 years into this, the corporate world, I'm tired. <laughs> I think what killed it for me is I, I ended up on a Labor Day taking a flight to Germany, leaving a beautiful 70 degree day in San Francisco and the family to go to Germany for what amounted to be a four hour meeting and turn around and I just said, you know, no, I'm done. I'm done. That was, that was literally it for me. And I decided to take some time off for the first time in my life. And I decided, okay, how much time are you going to take off? If I did three months, I, that wouldn't work. Mentally, I had a, I had a release from that world. And, and if I just gave myself a three-month ticker, or six-month for that matter, it would be just too soon. And I'd be worried about it all the time. So then I said a year. And I said, well, that seems like a lot. How about nine months? And I, I, this is a negotiation I had with myself, my internal dialogue, and nine months. Would you believe at the end of nine months I had my next gig? But it wasn't in any corporate world. It was my old colleague from my Minneapolis days, Terry Grogan, said, he, he would call me Sven, Sven, why don't you do what I'm doing? And he had started, of all things, for ad agency people who are used to dealing in big time television commercials, um, print collateral operation, uh, but a big one. And he had grown what was then Cellular One of Minnesota into AT&T Wireless to be one of eight national agencies to be the only one. So there was this vast river of marketing collateral, hundreds of jobs a week, software designed to help with the jobs. Open up a flavor of it in San Francisco, and I did. And I... I turned to my client, my former client from AT&T Wireless, Neve Savage, who was uh, VP of Marketing there. Neve had just taken a job as VP of Marketing of this unknown internet company called Netflix, <laughs> 2004. And I, I would be going to people and be telling them what Netflix was, and they'd go, Net what? What? What are you talking about? Net, huh? And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, you rent these DVDs and they come by mail and <laughs> it's like, oh, that's interesting. I think I'd do that, right? <laughs> so we, we started, I, I, I had pitched him on our capabilities and we think of course of Netflix as an internet company, but it's, they were actively trying to get customer acquisition back then and they staunchly believe, they're a very qual uh, quantitative company, still are, that uh, they had a, offline and online marketing, and they could see when they launched big marketing printed pieces that things 
really went through, they had big spikes in customer active, uh, customer retention, not, excuse me, uh, subscriptions. Mm -hmm. So he gave us a shot. I remember I was walking an afternoon walk to clear my head. I get this call from Erin McClay, still remember her. And she said, hey, we'd like to try you guys out. Um, but we, you know, we, we don't want to go full in. We, we just want to try you on a, a, a small run. I said, okay, yeah, sure, that makes sense. How much is the small run? She goes, 500,000 pieces. I said, okay, you know, I'm thinking, I'm, if, I wish she could have seen the look on my face at the time. <laughs> and um, we did that, we did it successfully. Well, 500,000 turned to a million pieces. These are big printed, at the time, eight and a half by, what were they? Eight and a half by five and a half, printed one side, uh, pr sorry, uh, coated one side, heavy cardstock pieces that would be inserted in Sunday newspapers back when they still did that, and that was the thing, and then Valpac envelopes, smaller versions. Well, the one million turned to five million per month, turned to 10 million per month, and I say that our, our peak was in 2007, the first four months, were over 100 million pieces a month. So it was a vast logistics business. And for me, it was very satisfying because I had always been used to selling the invisible in the advertising world. There's even a book called that, Selling the Invisible, but it fits. We're always selling things that we can't see, feel, hear, or touch. Um, technology falls into a lot of that category. This was something that we could create, uh, which we did. We could print, which we did. We could get paper coming in. By the way, just to give you an idea, one million pieces of these bigger boards was one semi, 53-foot semi full of paper. And we were imagine 100 of these coming in and going out. Six plants around the country, mostly in the upper Midwest, some in the southeast. And it was, it was just a vast logistics business. Obviously did okay on that. And that's what, right at that period, I, that's when I, I had already started looking in Sonoma to tie the two together. Um, that lasted uh, almost 15 years, not with Netflix, but because uh, they, we had a, unfortunately a shorter run with them. It, would, it lasted about six years. And then they changed their marketing to be more international market development. And then of course the whole current business model of streaming, that was to come later, uh, different, different business model altogether. Um, and uh, right about that time, I was saying, okay, um, I'm looking for my next career. And I think my career has been an assembly of careers, if you will. And in that assemblage of careers, I started getting interested in the whole idea of coaching and teaching, executive business coaching. And I decided to go to University of California, Berkeley's School of Executive, the Executive Coaching Institute, the ECI. Uh, there is where I met Trish in 2012. The two of us headed along and we were married in 2015. Uh, the ECI kind of turns you inside out, which I had no idea about. She knew, but I had no idea that was gonna happen. And it was, it was an interesting process. In a funny kind of way, it ended up leaving, leading to another career. I did coach for a bit, but I found my real passion was actually teaching. And uh, it led to doing workshops both with uh, Berkeley students, but also mostly Cal State. 
uh, MBA and undergraduate, and it led to teaching position. And what happened is the the dean of uh, the the, uh, uh, the undergraduate business school basically said, "We'd like you to develop a design thinking course because you have the background to do it on the MBA level and uh, put a whole curriculum together and and teach it." It's never been done before, and I. I have never taught it. Uh, I didn't even find out what the whole world of design thinking was all about, but I immersed, it was much like learning French. I immersed myself in that too. And uh, it was very rewarding. It led to becoming a full-time instructor at Cal State East Bay. And uh, meaning three courses uh, a quarter. They, they've moved to semesters, but they were quarters then. And uh, that's about the time. Of course, this is all basically almost minimum wage. I mean, it's really not much more than fast food wages, but money wasn't the object here. This was really about uh, designing things that I could add value. And they, I, to, to her credit, the dean, uh, they love industry outsiders. Uh, and, the, and the school of business is about half and half, because particularly for business, bringing in people from the outside really helps because they, they come in with a very different perspective than tenured professors who have only taught. And uh, so it was, it was rewarding for me. I loved it. And uh, what it ended simply because of the offer that Trish got from Intel to come up here. That's a pretty wild career. Yeah, I know. You know, what, you know what's funny? Um, it is wild. When I'm serving here, I go back a little further sometimes, and I say, every single job I've had in my life, and this is for you girls, too, <laughs> every single job I've had in my life has come into play here. I started as a supermarket checkout cashier at, at an A&P in New Rochelle, New York. I... Uh, I was a busboy, a waiter, and I ran the snack bar at a country club near my home. Well, you know, you get used to talking to people. You really get used to serving people. Little did I know that's what I ended up doing here. I happen to, I'm an extrovert, as you might tell. I love meeting and greeting people and talking to them. And those who want to learn, I, I just love when their eyes light up, when I tell them something that they had no idea about. And they come away with thinking, wow, I didn't know that about grapes or, or that grapes are for the birds. And wow, I, you know, I, that we stress grapes for flavors and why do they do that? And I get into the whole explanation. So I love that kind of stuff. And I have to be a little careful of it because um, I, ha I, have to, I have to read the room carefully, or in this case, the table. Because there are people who just want to, yeah, thank you very much. I'm here to taste. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> But, but if, if I do see that look that is one that they want to know, they want to learn, then I'm, I'm all in. So, but I, I do think all those careers, the, the presentation skills learned in the advertising business, the marketing skills learned in the advertising business, and as a chief marketing, that 26 years of doing it for others has helped me do it for myself. And uh, I hope that shows in the branding that we have, both in the website, our labels. I was very particular about what the label should look like, almost a little too prescriptive, because I've worked with creative people, really top creative people my whole life, and I know the best ones you don't want to be prescriptive to, but they also knew that um, I, I didn't want to have a fanciful label. I didn't think that represented what I wanted. 
Uh, I didn't want it to be humorous. I mean, there's plenty of places for that in the world. The Australians have done that to death, right? But uh, for, for, for me, it was, it was gonna have to be something of uh, solidity and, and, and substantial and serious, um, not playful. So I would give that kind of direction and uh, happen to work with some absolutely first-rate people here in the Valley. Um, just uh, Brian Richardson on the website, uh, website of things is fabulous, fabulously creative. Uh, Chris Noud on label design. I think Chris has probably done, I don't know, 30 to 40% of the labels in the Valley and has a range that's unbelievable in terms of the kind of design, which is the hallmark of a great graphic designer, uh, that they can have so many different looks and feels, and he has that kind of talent to, to do that. So yeah, so it's all kind of come together here. I guess that's the, I feel, I, yeah, I feel like it, it, the coaching too. Um, I got into, um, I'm pointing over here because I have a very visual memory, and there's a table over here last year a uh, dentist and his wife from Ohio were tasting and they loved the place and I was going on and talking and talking and he was asking me questions. And it started off innocuously but then the questions started getting more serious and I realized, well, wait a second, he's not talking about me. This has nothing to do with Benza, the vineyard or anything or Ron Benza. This is about himself. And I realized this guy was going through a midlife crisis. What do I do after dentistry? Is there is you know, that's what and there, from there on then I, I started kind of zeroing in because I knew where he was going and at one point his wife kind of chimes in and he he kind of goes to her he goes you see you see I, I, we, we can do we can do something like this and she goes dear you're not him and I just sort of backpedaled <laughs> as much as I could out of there because <laughs> I realized they probably had that conversation a few times. <laughs> but I think it is, I think it is true. I think it's fear that stops people. It's fear that stops people from taking the flyer to go to Europe that I did. It's fear that stops people from going to Minneapolis or San Francisco or <laughs> Oregon because <laughs> I've, I've done it more times. And I, I love it. I, it's what gets me going. It gets the blood pumping. So you mentioned the, the, the trip to Europe that kind of got, sparked your kind of real interest in wine. Tell me about before this became, before you got here as you were, as you were ex exploring for a potential wine future, but also just enjoying wine as a consumer. Tell me about how you sort of educated yourself on wine and how, how knowledgeable you felt about the wine industry and business before you got into it. Yeah, that's a great question. The, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the, the shortcut, the answer is, I thought I was quite knowledgeable until I bought this. <laughs> And then you realize what you don't know, and it is enormous, enormous what you don't know. And so I'm, I'm kind of a sponge for knowledge, and so you start picking it up. But I, to go back to the earlier part of your question, I did have an interest in the wine business going back to the 80s and started reading everything I could. Um, one person, Hugh um, Johnson, the British wine writer, um, I remember being in Paris and reading one of his books and it just opened my eyes. Later on in another book, he talked about the oldest wine that he had drunk, which was a Madeira from the 1600s that they opened, that was wonderful. And he said, this line is, was, I'm drinking the sun of 1643. And it just, oh, I, that line just, it, it is true about the wine business. It's what we put in those bottles, which, change forever, but it is a reflection of that 
point in time, that summer of 1643 that that Madeira came from. And Lord knows that Madeira probably crossed the equator as they did back then to get stuff swirling around both ways around the barrel. And uh, so a lot of the uh, writers got me into the romance of wine. Then I started trying to educate myself on wine in general, how it's made, how it's done, the wines of the world. I'd like to tell you that I knew something after that. I think what I knew was enough to be dangerous, to be honest. And it wasn't until I really got here that, and you start doing things and you realize, wait, there really is a difference between our vines, which are mostly 27 years old, and our next door neighbor, Ruby Vineyards Wines, uh, excuse me, vines, which are about 42 years old or 43 years old, and they're own rooted versus we're on American rootstock. Well, you don't realize the differences in what that means in terms of when things bloom and blossom and the, the, the things that you would have no knowledge of on the viticulture side unless you actually were in the field um, and observing what you observe. Uh, on the wine, the one thing I did know, I, I, I'm, I'm adventurous and I will take chances on myself, but the one thing I knew I didn't have time for in life was to, be, to really become a winemaker. I just don't have that and I, I can't do that as well as everything else I do here. So that is why we hired Peyton West in July and Peyton has been, uh, he's been like a godsend for us and he's so much fun to work with and my knowledge of wine has increased 15 fold in the year it will be next uh, in July 1st in a month or so it'll be it'll be a year that Peyton is here and when you taste with winemakers and Jess his wife it is just it's a whole different experience I remember there was a time we're, we're making a, a Syrah from the Rocks District which has got that Rocks funk going on and uh, more than any wine we have in barrel, it's changing depending on how, when we taste it. In two, two weeks ago, it's different than it is today. It'll be different yet again in two weeks. And it was at one point, we were getting the funk, but there was something else, and it was Peyton and Jess with me. And we said, what is that? And I, Peyton says, I can't put my finger on it. I said, neither can I, but it's, it's very distinct. And there's Jess with her superior palate saying, it's red meat. I said, oh God, yes, that's what it is. It's not charcuterie, it's red meat. It's almost like raw meat. And it, it was it, early on in the days of the Rock's Funk, which um, it's since mellowed out since then, but uh, I love doing stuff like that. And uh, learning the techniques that Payden had learned at the ha hands of Isabelle Meunier and Dominique Lafon uh, that she learned from, has been really uh, instrumental for me. So my wine knowledge has gone up a thousand percent, but like I said, do I think I could make wine? Hell no. Uh, would I even try? No, not, not, not unless I was a lot younger than I am now, unfortunately. But I'm, I plan on fixing that. I'm gonna live another hundred years, so maybe I'll have to rethink that. So as you were, you mentioned you spent a long time looking for space and look for space in multiple, multiple regions before finding this space. So tell me when you found it, why here? Why this particular space? Yeah, like I said before, it was hidden because it was only a hobby farm that was advertised when in reality it was more than that. And the, the, what really appealed to me is first of all, the look of the place. It's just a gorgeous spot. Um, I didn't mention it, but, but 
Trish being at Intel, she's on the Jones Farm campus, which is about, you know, 12 to 15 minutes from here, depending on a little bit of traffic. Uh, so that was a big plus. Now, we didn't know at the time she'd be spending most of her time going to PDX, but that's a whole different world. We are far from the airport. That's, that's the one thing. But I, I love where we are. I call it rural light. It's rural for sure, but we could be at Target in 15 minutes, multiple Targets, multiple Safeways. So I, it, it's not like we're stuck out with an hour to drive to someplace, but it's, it is most of our tasters who come here, many are, are from the Portland Metro, Portland itself, and they come here and they just unwind for a day and you could see it on their face. It's, we're 30, 35 minutes from downtown Portland, um, you know, without traffic. And they come here and they have a glass of wine and they're, they're, they're in the sun and they're looking at the chickens and the chickens are bothering them and they love it. And they're, it's like their day in the country to unwind. And yet they're not going deep into some of the other AVAs that are much further, which obviously is more of an ordeal. So uh, what also appealed to me is the fact that this was a turnkey operation. I really didn't have the time to spend, to terraform uh, a piece of land chop down fir trees, pull stumps, condition the land, plant. That's, that's a five-year process at a minimum before you have a harvest. And maybe, maybe even longer, depending on what you're dealing with. Um, that's, that was, I, I didn't want to do that. So this uh, enabled me to, this is the dream. That, that, I, maybe I, I should have said that to begin with. This is what I always had in mind when I was looking in Sonoma, but I couldn't afford it or it wasn't available. Uh, an already planted, established vineyard uh, that was here. Uh, and I also worked out a deal with the Baileys to purchase their farm equipment because they, were, they had no need of it anymore. So that came with three tractors and all the implements. And um, we had the tractor barn, which we then turned into the winery. And that's been a big project over the last year and a half. Two years, three years. <laughs> it's it's a long gestation because people don't realize the the permitting process is an ordeal unto itself, particularly in a place like Washington County, where they have a very good tax base with Intel and Nike and Columbia and other corporations, and the wine business is not as important to Washington County as it say is to Yamhill. So, um, getting. The final approvals for a type two permitted use winery in Washington County, which is what that is, <laughs> uh, took a long time, took a long time. We're still not finished with all of our permit sign offs. We have, I think, two more to go and then we'll, we'll be um, uh, electrical. We have one small thing to do. Plumbing was passed. Grading, I think we're going to get final sign off. The right of way, when you came into the driveway, we just widened it so we can get bottling trucks in here. Because uh, we do, we bring 53-foot bottling trucks in and design the winery so they can turn up. Actually, where you parked is an anvil turn, pull up there, and then back down and get the, the butt end of the truck, the business end, under the custom crush canopy. So um, from the get-go, we envisioned doing custom crush work, particularly on the sparkling side. And our very first investment in equipment, long before we had the winery, was on the sparkling side of things, disgorging equipment and, and tirage bottling equipment. And I'm, I don't think, you know, we're any kind of geniuses. Trish was real, she loves sparkling, she loves bubbles, but she also saw the opportunity in this. And um, our thinking was, six years ago, that there, 
has to be a market for small-scale sparkling, meaning 80 to 150 cases, and which are is too small to go, let's say, on Andrew Davis's radiant bottling truck or others, uh, where the minimum case lot is 400. He doesn't split anymore. Uh, Andrew has been wonderful for us too, by the way. He's he's fantastic. Uh, there is a little bit of incestuous activity because he's married to Isabel, who is across Payton's. So there there is that. Uh, we work with a consultant also in Healdsburg, on the sparkling side of things for our, for our, our clients, and. Um, it's, it's, it's actually come to pass. It's, it's one of those things if you, you know, feel the dreams. If you build it, they will come. And we, we've got one uh, still uh, custom crush client in Carta Wines, which is Pete, the Meyerhofer family. That was a customer of Payton's before, and Payton came with, and they've been fantastic. And we're looking pop, possibly for another one, um, but I'm a little reticent on that front because I, we have limited space, and the funny thing about wineries is they're out, they're outmoded before they are even finally approved. So I think we're going to get there. <laughs> I don't know what we'll do then, but <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess we can go, we can extend out a bit on the lawn that way. But um, but I do think um, Trish was right. I think I was right back in 2017. This the sparkling opportunity is there, and so we're grabbing it. And as I mentioned. Uh, to you prior to this interview, we, what's nice about that business is it's mostly, it's all actually off season. So it doesn't interfere with the whole harvest thing. So as you, as you honed on this property, as you made the purchase, as you started to get things off the ground, tell me about the, the actual logistics and the, the, the creation process of what is now Benza Vineyards. What were the sort of first things you had to deal with and, and get off the ground? Well, I think back, the first things off the ground were all of the approvals. We started working on the winery approvals straight away uh, because we knew that was going to be a very long process with land use, which you have to go towards to get that type two permitted use winery approval. But, it, but in the meantime, we also made some substantial changes. We went from traditional farming to organic farming in 2018. That has had a big effect on the vineyard. Uh, the highest tonnage year that this vineyard saw was right before that, in 2017, when it, when it was <laughs> 43, 43 tons. Dogs all over the place here. Yeah. And uh, once we went to organic farming, we had a bit of a drop-off the next year, but the following year was a big drop-off. And from people I, I've talked to around the valley, that's not unusual. So yeah, on the organic issue, I didn't realize at the time we went, I wanted to do it. I wanted to become both an organic vineyard and also eventually a no-till vineyard. I did everything at once, which in, in 2020 hindsight was a mistake. And I now know I should have held off on the no-till for a, at least two to three years until we got the vineyard back healthy. I, I have no corroboration on this whatsoever. I have talked to viticulturists and they kind of humor me, but maybe, you know, that kind of thing. But I felt like we took an IV out of this vineyard that was traditional farming. It was almost like a, a line of crack cocaine and the vines were used to that. And the minute we took that away, they were okay for about a year, but then we had a steep decline in production here. And unfortunately that often coincides with 
uh, any issues you have in the vineyard. A 27-year-old vineyard like this has issues everywhere. You have trunk disease, you have various kinds of it. And normally it's not a problem and it can be managed, but when the vines start to get weak, that's when you start to see those other issues come to the forefront. And that results in things like short shoots or improperly set um, canes and uh, we also started on a fertilizer, an organic fertilizer program four years ago, which has really paid dividends, I think, this year. With the amount of rainfall we've had on the fertilizer, things are looking really healthy this year. So I'm, I'm confident that that's been a very big learning curve, that, that switch to organic. Are, are we, uh, we're certified, we're, we are live certified, and our uh, Oregon Tilth certification will be coming in very shortly. So, uh, in fact, we're at the vinyl stage, it's already paid the fee and the application's 99.5% complete. And so, I, I hopefully we'll be able to get it on our bottles for the August bottling and uh, graphics. Um, but your question was more on... Kind of just on the logistics of starting a business. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that's, that's, there's that too. I, for, I forget all of that. Uh, what I didn't tell you is the deal I made with the devil, though, first. The devil being Trish in this case. And I knew, even though she comes from the high-performance computing world, that Intel was going to be a steep curve for her. Um, and it was. So I, the deal with the devil is, okay, Trish, you do Intel and I'll do everything else, including find this, get our horse up here and get him boarded, um, cleaning, making beds, eventually then the chickens uh, who came on, the cats, the whole deal. So that's still me. I'm still doing that, believe it. I don't know how to get out of that deal. <laughs> I think Trish humors me, you know, she humors me on it, but um, she's gone more than ever. She's in Houston today and she's, you know, she's, she's got a big job. So she's a senior vice president at Euler Packard Enterprise in charge of high performance computing and AI. So she's, she's got a big job and I, I totally get it. And leaves me here with the chickens and the cats and the dogs. So if any of you guys want to help, I'm, I'm, I'm open to that. But uh, so yes, so starting a business, yeah, it's, I've done it before, so I was able to use some of those skills uh, to, because there's some just general business things, how to operate QuickBooks that I knew because I'd been in it for 15 years on, on a Benza Group, Inc., which is different business, of course. Um, but it was starting without really having a knowledge base of who was who, where do, who, where do I get help, and I happened to fall for, for some good referrals, I mentioned two of them, Brian Richardson, website, Chris Nowd on labels. Um, but it was me up until April of 2022, gosh, it was. It was just me on everything. And that's, we got Alicia Kuhn as our operations manager full-time in April. What's great is she lives right up the hill, so she's here all the time and then Payton in July. So our, that's our full-time staff, and then we have part-time servers uh, for tasting. And what was nice for us, we, got, we caught a, if you could say anything good happened with COVID, we, we caught a lucky break with COVID, believe it or not. So we were gonna open for tasting in 20, 2020, you know how that went, and we didn't, of course, and by the time we were gonna open in 2021, the OLCC, 
was really eager to push people outside and not have them taste inside. So we went to them and said, hey, would you approve the tasting space on our property? Because we have this wonderful terrace. And they said, done. Here's your new control space. And, uh, and I said, fabulous. How long? And they said, in perpetuity. So that COVID gave us the ability to actually use this terrace. Otherwise, we would have had to uh, close it off from the house, believe it or not, and make it something else. And we didn't, obviously didn't want to do that. So that enabled us to make the, the winery uh, production facility only as opposed to a winery plus tasting room component in it. And we hired at that time, we hired Anthony King, who I'm sure you know, and Anthony came over as a consultant and in his quiet way said, you know, Ron, I think you're gonna be unhappy if you end up with a hybrid production space and tasting room. It won't be good for either. You'll feel it first on the production side. You'll be out of space before you know it. It's always going to get in the way of the tasting operation. And the two don't, even though they're, it's done that way in a lot of places, they don't coexist very easily. And I, I thought about it afterwards. I said, Anthony, you're right. What we're going to do is continue to serve out of our house and grounds, and we're going to take a flyer on getting the third property, which we call the Crockett House, which the Crockett's were living in, um, in the future, which is a big flyer. That's a big chip to, to, to bet on. And wouldn't you know it, Rod Crockett came up to me and we had a little driveway conversation last year and he said, you know, we're thinking of moving to Washington. Would you be interested in buying? And I said, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Now, we needed to do that like a hole in the head after the winery and a new roof in our house that was 10,000 square feet of metal roof, but we couldn't let that get out of our hands. For one thing, it's four acres of planted vines, and for another, we, did, we really want to control the experience that when you come down Pinot Place, that quarter mile long drive, we own everything. So we can we could add whatever signage we have. We don't have any hostile neighbors who hate what we're doing. You know, anything could happen. This, this little enclave has a history of that. So I wanted to avoid that at all costs. And uh, so we have it. And eventually we will make that into a, a tasting room, both inside and out. It has a fabulous lawn space that uh, we will have to work on to get it to have the same sort of coziness, if I could call it that, that this place does. A lot of people come here and go, God, this is so, it, not just pretty, but it's, I feel at home here. And I said, well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's, if you feel it's not commercial, it's because it isn't. It isn't commercial. It's our house. So um, we're going to do that there. Uh, we're not going to be in the wedding business, but we, what we are going to design is, uh, there's plenty of rooms. It's a 4,000 square foot building, so we can do corporate rooms. We, we could do uh, we could take four bedrooms upstairs and make them into two uh, conference rooms and hopefully attract some business that way on the corporate side of things. Because we have the right location for that. Very often winery tours will hit us either first or usually last as they're going back and depositing guests at Portland hotels because we're sort of on the way. So as you mentioned earlier the, the kind of lack of interest in being a winemaker and that you and then that you're kind of the sole sole proprietor for most of this. So tell me about finding your role and finding what you enjoyed most slash needed to be done most for to make this work the way you wanted it to work. I spent a lot of time 
doing three things, being in the vineyard, uh, getting the, the tasting operation up and running, which is an enormous amount of time. But I also had this dream, which I, we've had moderate success at, but I haven't cracked the code. I'm not sure anybody else has either. Uh, and that is online sales. And early on, I thought the best thing I could do is spend time to get licenses in a lot of states. It's a lot of work. And it was just me doing it. And uh, we're, we're licensed in 30, we ship to 34 states and have permits for 34 states because I really wanted to have that bedrock. I, I believe in all the businesses I've always been in, I, I believe in spending money on what I call foundation. Foundation is get the right software, get the right permits. Don't try to fudge your way through stuff. I, I, I can't sleep at night, I'm one of those people. To me, there's two sides of people in the world. There are people who don't pay their taxes and sleep like a baby because they feel like they're getting away with something. And then there's me and the other side, which is we fret about this. Like, are we in compliance with all that? Otherwise, we can't sleep. And I'm, I'm more of that. So I believe in, in foundation money. Well, we, people said, well, you, what are you going to do? Get ship compliant to do all this stuff and autofile for you guys? Yes, exactly what I'm going to do. And does, is that cheap? No, but it allows me to sleep at night. And it takes 90% of the work out of it. So there's still the other 10% you've got to do, but you know, uh, affidavits and renewals and swear you haven't done this, that, or the other thing. Some of the states have affidavits that are almost 50 questions. Uh, have you ever been convicted of anything other than a traffic violation? And so if you have one of your staff doing this, they're signing your name to this. <laughs> you don't want to do that because in some states it's actually a felony to have it, um, misinformation on those documents. Tennessee, for instance. Um, so that that was a large part of my time, and I did that uh, in some of the winter months. Familiar with the, with the vineyard and making the wines, um, all the stuff that you get into, even if you're not the winemaker, all the tasting, all the trials, all the things, really enjoyed that. So it is a multifaceted business. You've got the whole viticulture thing. You've got the whole winery thing and the wines. You've got the whole business commerce side of things. And now as we've started to get our little fledgling staff, we're starting to do more events. And events take a lot of effort. We just did a wonderful dinner in the Mac Market in McMinnville and uh, very successful. Um, but it, it, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot you know, for a little fledgling organization like ours. So. And then there's, of course, the wine awards and making sure you're in front. We've just started a, a whole new venue, which is Oregon Distribution, um, where uh, self-distribution, really, where we're acting as a wholesaler to a, a number of uh, shops, a couple of restaurants here and there, made in Oregon, a few other places. And I see that growing um, as the, I still have, some questions about the tasting numbers for this year. I, 22, 23 is starting to feel a lot like 22, and 22, everybody, it was actually countrywide. I, I, didn't, I thought it was just the Willamette Valley, but it was actually countrywide. There was a big slowdown in tasting traffic in 22, and I think it was because of the comparable numbers from 21. 21 was the explosion, the post-COVID explosion. People just got out. They just, they had to get out. And uh, we were thinking, that was the first year we opened here, we couldn't put tables and chairs out here fast enough on this lawn. We haven't done that in, in 
probably a year and a half, unless it's a planned event. Um, we would not turn anybody away because we have so much space. We'd say, no, just give us a moment. We'll set up a table with an umbrella for you out here. I don't know. You know I, I don't know what uh, 23 will bring. Our, we're, we're up slightly in customer counts, but not in revenue, which is interesting. And I, this could, if, if we're at all um, a harbinger of the industry, that could be because horns are being pulled in because of the economy. People are being, before they join a wine club, they're, they're, they're thinking, we actually had a situation where a woman had filled out all the paper, she's sitting there with her husband, filled out all the paperwork for the wine club, so excited, and he put the squash on, whatever that word is, kibosh, kibosh, yeah, on it at the last second, and said, oh, we'll get back to you on that. I said, okay. So there is a little bit of that going on right now, I think, and we'll see how the how the year sorts out. So you mentioned setting up the, the, the tasting here, so I'm curious about, um, in addition to the the, the, the the space, tell me about the wines. What are, what are you... What are you hoping for the wines? What did you want the wines here to be? And, and how has that kind of progressed? Yeah, the wines. Uh, I'm very happy with our Pinots. Let's talk about them first. They are estate Pinots. Uh, we worked for nearly six years with Andrew Kirkland at Ruby. And Andrew's one great talent, no, one, one, he's very talented, but one of the things he does really well is he gets to know who he's making wine for. And that's not a one-off process. That's a, that's a multi-year process. What, do, what kind of palettes do Trish and Ron have? What do they like? Because that's a moving target also. And, uh, and he's, been, he's done a fabulous job in, in making wines for us and it won, had a wonderful handoff to, to Payton. Uh, so I'm very happy. Our, one of the things that is different about us is, and this gets back to that own rooted versus rootstock and age of vines. Ruby's wines are very, even though they're right there next to us, we border, we have fences that border each other. We, we own the furs over there and the tractor turns into Ruby on the other side. And, and yet our wines are so different. Same winemaker, a lot of the same barrels. Uh, he's not doing deliberately different styles. Ruby's wines tend to be on the medium red spectrum and we're on the dark red bramble blackberry spectrum. Uh, Payton noticed the same thing and talked about this being Eola Amity and Laurelwood here. Uh, we have very, our reds are really dark. Andrew at one point had to stop the punch downs on some of our stuff because our wines are already too dark. And it, now, the French would come in here from Burgundy and say, mais bien sûr, it is a different uh, vineyard. And we would say, but yeah, but it's right next to it. Yeah, as well, that's, the monks realized this in the sixth century. They, they knew that this would be a Grand Cru and this would be a Premier Cru and thou shalt never become the other. And uh, I think it's a little bit true here. It's a different site, which is really strange. Now, we don't really know how own-rooted versus American rootstock, Ruby's own rooted, we're American, their older vines were younger than them. Do those play a role? Probably, um, but we're not sure how. We just know the result is different. Um, very happy, we've always had, so this vineyard, in some respects, is a little bit of Franken vineyard, I call it, <laughs> only because it's been sometimes planted and then changed. Uh, a block over here was once, Chardonnay 76, 
and it was grafted to Pomard, Pinot Noir Pomard, um, except for a couple of rows in front of the winery, which we love. And I wish we had more of that Chardonnay, because now who, you know, Chardonnay went out of vogue until really it became back into vogue. And if, I've been told that if you don't have Chardonnay, you're looking for it this year, forget it. You're just not going to get any unless you plant it and wait a few years. But uh, uh, our Gris is, is, is very interesting. We, we've got, or back to the Franken Vineyard thing. So we've got, we grafted two, we have four acres of Pinot Gris, too much in our opinion. We took two acres of the bottom Gris and grafted it in 2020 to the Espaguet 352 Chardonnay clone that's used in Champagne for our bubbles program. We also, at a block behind me, block three, which was originally Chardonnay grafted to Pinot Noir Vadensville, and now we, over four years, we've tried to bring it back to the original Chardonnay 95 through different process, trunk renewal. So we, we, we raised up suckers, tied them off so we wouldn't trample them, and they're, they're now about an inch and a half thick and lignified. And we seem to, I would say that vineyard, that block is probably now 75% Chardonnay, the original Chardonnay. So we're looking for more Chardonnay. In the, and we still have two acres of gris. This year we're actually making a reserve gris, um, where, which Payton is making in a cigar barrel because it'll have more contact with the leaves being longer and flatter. And he's really making it like a Chardonnay. And I'm really, so far it's tasting fabulous and I'm really dying to see how the, how the final product comes out. We make a good deal of rosé. Uh, we were, we made our first traditional method bubbles in 17. Um, our 18 is still, we don't have much of it left, but it's almost four years on the lees before being disgorged. And then in 2020, we decided to make a traditional method brute rosé and then came the fires and smoke. We were so inundated with smoke here, it was a no-brainer for us. We just let everything hang for the birds, except for three tons that we made still rosé and this rosé bubbles out of, which is a forced carb, mm -hmm. which we're obviously not gonna sell the same price point as we do our traditional method, a lot lower, but this is the marketing guy in me. I didn't want to make it look cheap, so it is, one of the most beautiful bottles we have because of the color, it's in that lighter, almost clear flint bottle. It's got the Benza shroud on the front of it. And you undress it just the way you do a traditional method, which I think is part of the whole secret of bubbles. It doesn't matter, for most people, it doesn't matter that it's forced carbonated. That's, that's to me, is the, the real finding. So that turned out to be the, the surprise hit of 2020. People. It's still one of our biggest sellers. People love it. And Payton has taken it, that, uh, we did it again in 21. It was supposed to be a one-off. And we did it again in 21 because it sold so well for 20. And in 22, Payton stepped in, and it's one of his first wines released. And it has, its color is a little different. It's got a, real, a little bit of a ruby red grapefruit uh, taste to it, which is really interesting. So we either start our tastings with that or end it. And it actually goes well at the end of all the Pinots, almost as a palate cleanser. So that's, that too is exciting. So uh, Brousse, you kind of mentioned, is a, good as a palate cleanser. Uh, and and, and Chardonnay, anything, anything else you're making, making now or working on? Yeah, we're really excited about the Syrah I had mentioned from the Rocks District. And that, we'll probably not over-vintage that. We're at a point now in our development, this is going to be our seventh harvest. 
I know not big by Willamette Valley standards, but for us, that's a big deal. And uh, um, yeah, we wanted to broaden out our, our line a little bit. And uh, the Syrah, we went up, Trish and I went on a trip to Walla Walla and fell in love with the wines, and in particular, uh, a few of the Syrahs that we had tried, and one in particular, Roti from the Rocks District, and said, oh God, we gotta get these grapes. So I talked to Payden, thinking, yes, there's no way we're gonna get Rocks District grapes. And it turns out, he had a contact at the Borderlands Vineyard, it's a new vineyard up there, and uh, very professionally run, and we worked out a deal. And so we're gonna be buying the fruit for another couple of years, at least, at least and may even increase it. Uh, we, we're not gonna over vintage that Syrah as we are the Pinots because we now have enough stock to basically uh, be able to over vintage our Pinots in barrel for 18 months. So we're gonna kind of leave them be. We won't bottle them this August, we'll bottle them in, in February or March. But the Syrah, we don't see any real advantage in letting the Syrah stay on wood any longer. Syrah in oak, French oak, it's not the same thing as we've come to realize as Pinot and French oak. It's a little different. And uh, we actually, from, uh, not ferment, but we, uh, we've got our Rocks District Syrah in punchins. And it's actually to lessen the contact of the wine because there's less wood on the wine itself, on the fluid. Um, yeah, that's where we are. I'm not sure. So we have a Gris, we'll have uh, probably add a traditional method, Brut Rosé, to the list, maybe this year. Uh, we're not sure about that yet. We had originally the idea of doing a Prosecco-style wine. The issue there is you need Charmant tanks to do it, and I think what the Force Carb showed us is that we could kind of get there without the tanks. The force carb world has really done well, and Castile in particular down in McMinnville is able to do some of that stuff for us, get it down and force carb it at, at higher levels where the protein, mo uh, higher, sorry, percentages of pressure that doesn't obscure the protein molecules that are in there and, and distort the wine in any way. So three Pinots, what, the, our, our bottom end Pinot is called Symphony, which is really surprising because it's our least expensive Pinot, but it's the one that's won the most awards, which is kind of weird. And it shows big and it shows well. And that's why the restaurants are interested in it. And I've, I've seen some of the markups they're taking. And I, I want to be sick, <laughs> to be honest, because I'm saying, wait a minute, you know, you're asking us for a wholesale discount and you're selling it at this price? That's 3X or 4X uh, of our retail? Um, but, uh, and they're selling it and they're selling it. So, you know, that's, I know it's a different industry, different business. Um, they've got lots of overhead and issues too. So, but Symphony does very well, shows very well. It got 95 points with James Suckling, which was the second highest wine of the, of the, is a 2019. We haven't released the 2021, a uh, 2020, we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, buy the grapes. We actually offered to pay our, this, uh, sorry, I should, I should say Symphony is a wine that comes from different uh, vineyards. And the idea behind it was to make a Willamette Valley all-star wine. Because I think you take people like me and we fall in love with the estate wines and everything is the estate, the estate, the estate, and therefore everything else is less good. Well, nonsense, you know. It's, 
that's bullshit. Yeah, that's bullshit. I mean, the truth is you can make a fabulous Willamette Valley All-Star wine if you source it, the grapes from the right places. And that's what we wanted to do. So we sourced it from, at the time, Vidon Vineyard. This was back when Don Haggy owned it. And um, Timbaland Time in Yamhill Carlton and uh, Bellevue Cross in McMinnville. And very lightly oaked, 12.5%, uh, about 65% Pomard clone, so it, it shows big. Uh, some winemakers have tasted it and said, it's a bit showy, <laughs> which actually works for us. So it's, it's a bestseller. It's, it's, it does well, and we'll continue that. So you've, you've, you've spent a career selling things, marketing things. Uh, tell me about selling wine, and tell me about selling your wine, when it's something that you've created. Yeah, selling wine is hard, right? You know, we often say this is three businesses. I actually think it's four, but you've got production, you've got viticulture, and sales and marketing. The fourth, in my opinion, is hospitality. I don't think hospitality, it's, there's an overlap with sales and marketing, but you could be great at sales and marketing and be absolute horseshit at, at hospitality. That is something that's making people feel, as the French would say, comme chez soi, at their, at their own place, uh, is, is, is different. Um, and so that, the hospitality thing is important to our selling of wine. Uh, as is how we present ourselves, our social media campaign, our website, how we present our wines. I never wanted, and this is something I worked out with Brian Richardson, I never wanted to have anything less than beautiful big bottle shots in our, on our website. I go crazy when I see thumbnails of things. I said, well, you're, you gotta have sex appeal here. If they can't read the label and they're looking at every, if it's a thumbnail, every bottle shot looks the same. They should be able to, it should be big enough that they could actually see the color of the wine if it's a clear bottle or a flint bottle, I think. So, um, but it is, by, sales and marketing is by far and away the hardest part of the business. I, I think uh, they're like I mentioned, cracking the code on online sales, which I'm not sure anybody's really done well, is to me is the holy grail of marketing. If I can make money when I sleep, because somebody's clicking on a site and they're in a different time zone, I'm a happy guy, right? As opposed to gutting out every I call <laughs> our service I hate that phrase, but gutting out every tasting, you know, one after another, after another, after another. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that is the big focus of where we're going next. And part of the way is broadening our appeal, getting better known, because we're really relatively unknown, uh, getting good reviews for people who come here, uh, broadening the business across the United States, growing club, of course, that's key to it. We have a large, I think half of our club is not from Oregon, which is good for us. Uh, growing that is a specific challenge because those people don't have club parties. They can't come for member appreciation parties if they live in North Carolina. So you've got to find a way to keep them in the loop and keep them happy. Otherwise, the, the basic club churn will get you on them. So, yeah, if I, if I could find the silver bullet to online sales, um, I would. Uh, because I do think that's that's a, a major part of it. Meanwhile, what we do is uh, we try to emulate and benchmark ourselves against some players that we think have been exceptionally good in the D2C area. Uh, Soder, for example. Uh, I think Soder is a, a unique place offering unique things from like the provisional tasting that we've done a few times. We've done some Intel things there with Trish. Uh, people love it. Uh, but building that D2C business, and I realize they're in distribution now with some of their other brands, but, but 
and there's a limit to how far up you can go in direct-to-consumer before you get into distribution. I'd like to get to that point, let's, let's call it. So you mentioned earlier that when the opportunity here arose, you already had a familiarity with Oregon wine. There was already, this was already Pinot Noir that you appreciated. So tell me about uh, your kind of initial impressions of Oregon wine uh, before you got here, and then once, once you got here, uh, sort of how those impressions changed. Yeah, good question. I, I was sitting next to Josh Bergstrom at one of the IPNC lunches, and I said, you, I, Josh, I'm blaming you for me being here. He looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, it was because I was at Ad Hoc in Napa, the restaurant, Thomas Keller's family place, and I had a Bergstrom from Oregon, from your vineyard, and I could never go back again. I, it had so many of the qualities that I appreciated from Burgundy, the sort of earthiness, uh, the subtle subtlety of it. Let's face it, a lot of California Pinots, not all of them, but a lot, they're very, very sun-driven, very fruitful. I mean, they're big, powerful wines compared to some of the things that we do have a lot more finesse in Oregon. And that wine, that single wine turned me. And I started, it's a silly story, but I started looking up Oregon wines. I wanted to know more. I wanted to get more. So I found this little family, tiny little family concern called Domaine Serene. And I had no idea that this was the big Evanstat pharmaceutical fortune at work here. Uh, and because I kept running into the word family, which they are. They are, absolutely. I mean, and started ordering their wines. When we came up here, we actually joined uh, Domaine Serene. It's, and we, we then let the club go but since have circled back and are actually members again at, at Domaine Serene of their club. It's the only club we're members of. And we do that for the Burgundy side of things because we love, we love Burgundies. Um, it, just an aside, we had a blind Burgundy tasting a month ago here and we pitted three of our states, uh, 17, 18, and 19, against three premier crew Burgundies that we had scoped out in advance and we knew they weren't too far on the Brett side of things, as sometimes Burgundies can be. And uh, it was a fabulous event. And Peyton and I, we both got our 19 estate mixed up with a Burgundy, which is interesting. Um, they, they were, so it kind of told me that we're certainly on the right track. You know, we're not a Grand Cru vineyard here, but uh, we, we can hold our own against some premier crews. So. So once you got here and started to kind of immerse yourself in the industry here, what, what did you see? What, did Oregon, what was the Oregon wine industry kind of like as a newcomer? Yeah, well, I, I was attracted to the collegial nature of the industry uh, right off the bat. Sat next to this guy who was obviously a winemaker at a sparkling symposium I didn't realize was Thomas Hausman until later. Uh, we introduced ourselves, and he's writing this little script in, in, in this uh, black and white notebook uh, from like grade school kind of thing like 5,000 words on one page, you know, flip the page, another 5,000 words. And so he, we started talking in the break and said, oh yeah, I love what you're doing with the idea. Hey, if you need a neck freezer, I got one. You know, it's just something like that. You could just borrow from me. That's what I mean. You know, here's Thomas, never met Trish or I, or me, and just out of the blue, just said, hey, I can lend you a neck freezer if you need it. Turns out we didn't need it, but uh, great guy. Thomas is very, Oregonian in that respect. Yeah. Uh, I love the collegial nature of, of the wine industry. Uh, I, I think it, it, it's good for Oregon, it's good for the industry. I love the fact that the pioneers are still with us. 
I mean, David Alzheimer is probably going on 42, but, you know, Dick Ponzi, I mean, full head of hair, full head of brown hair, no less. You know, I mean, come on, Dick. <laughs> and I th I'm not sure what Dick's age is. I looked him up. I won't say it here on camera, but I was, like, surprised. And uh, there's a lineage with uh, him and Marty Knopf, who was our contractor for the winery that Anthony King recommended for us. And Marty has built a number of wineries, uh, including Ponzi, and goes back with Dick 35 plus years ago when they sat in a little construction shed and planned out Bridgeport Brewery together. And Marty would say that the most painful thing he had to do is take it apart about two years ago, I think it was, lock, stock, and barrel, as the new owners wanted to dismantle the whole thing and get it ready. And he said that was painful because he had seen all of the work he had done over time and just sort of, you know, go up and and be reconstituted as a different space. But I, I, I do love that about Oregon. I think it's uh, the programs are here that you could get involved with as much or as little as you want. We're a member of a number of organizations here. Um, I get involved a little bit. Not as much as I used to, to tell you the truth, because I'm kind of busy on stuff. <laughs> but it's nice to have the background that um, they've got our backs, if you will, on a lot of the bread and butter programs, including things like the WVWA's healthcare. Oh, sorry, that's the Oregon Wine Growers Association, the healthcare program for our employees. So that, those are nice things to have. So, with that said, and as you mentioned, obviously you started right pandemic kind of take kind of hit, hit right as you were getting rolling here um, with us kind of on the on the back side of that and heading heading forward what do you see in the future for Oregon wine what comes next in the next in the next decade yeah the crystal ball question mm -hmm. yeah it's a tough one I'll tell you what I hope doesn't happen I hope smoke and fire don't become a thing uh, and I think a lot of us in the industry are worried that we will go the way of Australia, British Columbia, and California. It's possible. I mean, we have better protections than they do against this stuff in terms of our geography and where we are. But uh, let's face it, it's, it is a thing that's gonna happen periodically and we just have to prepare for it. And our knowledge base is increasing. And I, part of that wine industry thing is, you know, what Linfield is doing is phenomenal. What OSU is doing is phenomenal. Uh, I trust, even though I've never met her, uh, Dr. Patty Skinkas of OSU is like, she's my, my hero. Her, particularly her line after the freeze of April 14th and 15th, where we had so much primary bud damage. And she said, at the end of a long Zoom call, and I think there might have been two million of us on that call, she said, look, if I could leave you with one thing, it's this. Leave the vines alone. They will find a way. Leave them be. Leave them alone. And I think everybody who heeded that message did well. The vines did come back. I, I, I'm not quite sure how, but it, the, you don't hear anybody complaining about the 22 harvest being deficient in terms of tonnage. So um, I, I think the other big concern I have is climate change. Um, we are the canary in the coal mine on climate. And we are seeing the effects of warmer nights in particular. We, we all pay attention to daytime temperatures, but nighttime we're sleeping and we don't know. But the grapes know, they do. And what we need, of course, to, have the, to be this premier Pinot Noir growing 
area for the future is a long, cool season. I had read somewhere, but I didn't follow up on it, that we're no longer considered a cool weather grape area, which I, I took that, you know, wow, okay. That's a little scary uh, because we don't, unless you're in the Van Duzer corridor where you've got those fresh winds blowing, we don't have the Bay Area fog that's all of a sudden going to come in and cool everything down like clockwork at night. And even in the Bay Area, that's, that's suspect in Carneros now. Things are changing there too. So we can go up higher in elevation and that's starting to happen. High elevation Chardonnay is leading the pack in terms of people going after it. Um, those are the, the, the things to be cautious about. Uh, probably the third bit of caution is just in terms of who we're appealing to. But that's an industry-wide thing, and that gets into the millennial versus Gen Z eventually and uh, issues there. Uh, will wine consumption continue on a decent track, or will there be some hiatus in there? What I've seen of the Oregon wine industry is maybe the biggest change that's just beginning is consolidation. No one's really talking about that, but I see it a little bit now. You, you see the Europeans coming in because Oregon is, Willamette Valley in particular, is on the map. And some of the big sales, some of the biggest sales have been to European firms. Uh, the family nature of the wine business has got to change here. I, I hope it doesn't because we're kind of one of those people. But uh, you could see any place where this has happened where there's a huge amount of wine, you're going to see consolidation at every level. The middle will buy the smaller, the big will buy the, the less big, and eventually we'll, we'll have probably fewer wineries. Right now my gut feeling is we have too many wineries chasing too few tasters. That's, I hope no one quotes me on that, but that's my, my feeling at the moment. Uh, it's we might have gotten to that point where things are getting a little difficult in that respect. Uh, gone are the days that Memorial Day and late, um, Thanksgiving, people would come and load up their station wagons, if you will. That's what they were back then with cases of wine. You know, we're well beyond that. We have, we have people here, I, I'm, I'm always stunned this weekend we had we had walk-ins of six and eight people seven six seven and eight walk-ins and i'm thinking who would go to a restaurant without making a reservation for something like that who would go to a winery i don't know if they bounced or i didn't ask if they bounced around from place to place but we do have the ability to accommodate that here so it's not that big of a deal but uh it, it is kind of testament to maybe they feel that things are a little easy, that things are, I can do that. Yeah, that's no problem, we'll just show up. Yeah, whatever, you know, they'll serve us. And what's next for you, what, as you look ahead for your own future, what, what's, what's on the horizon, either in wine or, or beyond? Um, I think I'd like to be carried out of here in a body bag, uh, <laughs> or better yet, cremated on site. Um, I do, uh, I actually think this is my my terminal position, which is a, a hard thing to say, but there are better places to, uh, there, there are worse places to say that in than here. I really, I really love this. Uh, one thing we mentioned on our site, when Trish started working at Intel, it was tough in that first year in particular. She was there over five years before going to HPE. She would come down our quarter mile long Pinot Place driveway and she just would have this 
it feels like a weight lifted right off her chest, like as if her blood pressure went down 10 or 15 points. And there's something about this place that does that. We've never been able to really put our finger on what it is, but we know it happens. And so we wanted to convey that to our guests here. So the space allows us to not shuttle people in and out. We've never yet had to ask anybody to leave politely in the sense of, hey, just want to let you know that this is going to be the last pour and, you know, not, that we, we have the room here. So, so we really want them to come unburden themselves. And I figured the way, if we have them for two hours, it's two hours where they could just go decompress. And that's part of our unwritten uh, appeal, I think. All right, well, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? I don't think so. I think you asked great questions. So thank you. They thank them. Thank you. Put them together, all right. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank they you. were smart questions. I think you shared the story very well, and we appreciate your time and appreciate you sharing this beautiful day with us. Oh. We'll let you off the hook. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.